there are many aspects about long COVID I could discuss tonight. And so I'll kick off by, you know, doing the, the, the overarching sort of avenues that I could be going down. But I'll also call on you guys if there are any burning topics that you'd really like to hear about tonight as well, because there's so many different avenues I could cover. So what is long COVID and why are we faced with this so-called long COVID health crisis? Long COVID is what we are describing as the ongoing or prolonged symptoms that people can have once they've recovered from the illness COVID-19, so caused by SARS-CoV-2. So we absolutely know that when people are getting infected, that you might have symptoms that prolong beyond your sort of seven-day period, and that can be quite normal. So we sort of often call that the lingering or long tail of infection. You might have symptoms that prolong, you might have uh, a bit of fatigue and things like that. But what we're talking about here when we're referring to long COVID is that those symptoms can not just persist, they can worsen or even new ones evolve. So long COVID is the period of time or essentially a diagnosis that can be given to you once you've been suffering for these, with these symptoms for a, at least three months. So this was a, 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 a criteria set by the WHO when we knew that many people were not recovering. If we go back to 2020, when you know, we had so few infections here in New Zealand compared to anywhere else in the world, very early on, one of the, one of the sort of key features of our, our pandemic was you know, watching our numbers go up or stay low. And that was, that was you know, what we saw each day with our announcements. One of those announcements that always hit home really, really hard was the how many people have recovered. Recovered means you are no longer ill. We know that so many people have not recovered till this day from their the first wave infections back in 2020. Recovered, they are not. The thing is, is post-viral illnesses are not something new, nor were they unexpected. There were many people just waiting for this to explode into the tsunami that it now is. So when the first waves were hitting internationally, there were groups congregating, patient groups saying, why is no one listening? We are so sick, we're not recovered. And I guess, sadly, and, well, sadly in some ways, that that patient voice was really recognised when it came from doctors and athletes. The doctors who were saying, oh my goodness, why am I being dismissed by my own colleagues that what I'm going through is not real? Athletes. Of course I'm going to get off off the couch and try and exercise again. It's that sort of the two polar um, elitist, if you like, with when they all congregated and shouted loudly that they're not recovered, is when they started to be heard. This was, so the term long COVID was coined by patients in May 2020, and people with the well-known post-viral illness, otherwise known as ME-CFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, were waiting in the wing saying, hi, we've always been here, we knew this was going to happen. Decades and decades of medical neglect about what it means to suffer from a post-viral illness or a post-infection illness. 
Even the term chronic fatigue syndrome is often dismissed. Oh, that just fatigue syndrome. You know, is that really even that serious? Is that even physiological? All that sort of constant dismissal that people have been experiencing for decades. So the silver lining from this pandemic is that we're bringing these groups together, that all post-viral illnesses, all post-infectious illnesses are absolutely real, are absolutely physiologically caused, and there's huge demand and huge urgency to understand why these illnesses happen. So when we speak about long COVID and what really is it, there's sort of some top symptom categories that really create, create this debilitating illness. We have what we hear about a lot with fatigue. And put it right out of your mind that fatigue is not tiredness. It's not exhaustion. It is complete body disruption. You cannot move. You cannot function. That's what this fatigue that people try and articulate. They find difficult to really articulate what that means to the body. So fatigue is central to people's symptoms. Another core symptom group is uh, brain fog. The ability to think, the ability to remember or articulate sentences. There's so many things that brain fog means and it sounds all sort of cute and fluffy, brain fog. It's, it's extremely debilitating. And you can imagine it, it, this is going to affect your everyday life so many different ways when your brain is not working the way it once did. So we've got the fatigue, the brain fog, and I guess tied in with the fatigue is the other sort of core feature of ME, or chronic fatigue syndrome, is post-exertional malaise. So this is where any form of exertion, whether that is emotional, or in, you know, just using your brain in any way, or obviously being physical, triggers that switch. That switch where your body has, goes into a form of shutdown and you are bone-numbingly fatigued. You can't get off the couch. I very much doubt here tonight there is anyone with these symptoms because they cannot be in this room. So many people with this condition are now shut away from society. It is too risky out here to get infected yet again. And where we are now in this pandemic is really shutting out all those vulnerable people. There's also, so there's the people living with ME from another viral illness, some for decades, and then we've got waves and waves of infection from this virus occurring right now. So those are the sort of key features of this illness. There is so much we don't know yet, and there's, so there's, yeah, the, the research pathways that we need to go down are vast. But the key thing is, is that they are not new. So what generally happens, or what sort of the, the reason why there's sort of so much um, awareness going on about these illnesses and trying to describe that they're not new, is that, as I've said, people with ME have been trying to raise the alarm for decades. And we don't have the tests to be able to detect the underlying triggers, without the pathology, essentially. So what tends to happen is you go to your doctor or your tests come back normal. And therefore, shoulders shrug. We don't know what's wrong. There's nothing wrong here. When the answer should be, none of our tests are showing the pain you're going through. We need to do better. We will do better. 
And in fact, watching the sort of trajectory internationally versus what's happening here, the first phase of, of patient demand was, please believe me, this, I'm so, so sick. I, I'm, I'm, of course I'm ill, because the, the, the diagnosis that was dished out too regularly was anxiety. You're anxious. You're sick. And sadly, it's still happening. We're, we're spreading awareness as much as we can, but I get email after email after email of being dismissed by their doctors. And we know that the tools aren't there yet, but we do know the tool of listening, and that's, that's essentially you know, what the initial demand from patients was, please believe me. So as, as that trajectory moves along, and people do take, doctors are taking this seriously and realising there is so much illness out there, the next wave of, of sort of patient feedback is, now my doctor acknowledges this and then they say, there's nothing we can do. Which in some ways, sure, we still don't have key tools, there's, there's no treatments for these illnesses, but there is symptom management, and that's what we're sort of, th th those are the sort of phases that are happening that sort of roll out internationally and then sort of trickle through to New Zealand. So, you know, the first thing is acknowledgement, validation. So patients want to know that they feel validated, that this is not a psychological illness. Of course, being sick is going to play into, or, you know, trigger ongoing illnesses, oh, sorry, um, you know, it's going to trigger those feelings as well and psychological elements, but that's secondary to your illness. It is not the cause of your illness. So those were the sort of key features of, you know, where we've come in New Zealand, where we are right now. As soon as Omicron hit, the wave of post-illness post symptoms absolutely escalated. We were trying to prepare New Zealand early, saying we know this is coming. We had New Zealanders with long COVID, but we kind of didn't act fast enough. But really, we've got decades to catch up on. So there are many avenues for the research. There are many hypotheses being floated around. So I'll talk about some of those and where we're heading down the research pathways. But I guess, as, as I said, it would be also, I would love to address you know, anyone's burning questions or avenues tonight uh, in my discussion. Anyone have a question? So you said that you know, the long COVID symptoms are really debilitating for people, but is that on a bit of a scale? Because I know that you know, um, with chronic illnesses like ME and fibromyalgia and all the things that mm -hmm. live under that umbrella, you can be on somewhat of a scale and there are people who are more functional than others and is that similar with long COVID? And, you know, obviously you'll get people who have those illnesses already that also get COVID yes. and do you find that they suffer worse or they seem to be able to cope better because they've already been living with a lot of those symptoms anyway? Yes, absolutely. There is an absolute scale. With, with ME and long COVID, absolutely. And functional is sort of that classic way of saying there are many among us that you would never know have this illness because they go to work, they do their job, and they function to their best ability, and then they recover over the weekends or, you know, absolutely. So there are people that are forced back to work, you know, like they have to return to work for financial reasons, 
And absolutely, so it depends which one of those uh, on the spectrum is really triggering that debilitation. Is it fatigue? Is it brain fog? Is it all of the above? The most severe don't leave their homes. They can't. So absolutely, there's a spectrum. And it's, it's the severe cases that obviously are causing the most debilitating illness. Uh, but absolutely, there's a spectrum. And, uh, and I, the way I would sort of see the most mildest form, I think there will be mild debilitating symptoms that people aren't describing as long COVID. I think the neurological effects are definitely out there. Um, where you know you sort of you're carrying on living life, but you notice that your ability to do the things you once did in a quick way or whatever. You know you hear a lot about people who may be having those lingering symptoms. So you know I think that's almost the most mildest form of noticeable symptoms, and then absolutely the the spectrum is very wide in, in severity. My question is just about data. Have you got any estimates of, or accurate estimates, of how many people are suffering from long COVID? And then the second question is, are there any people who've actually recovered, or is it just a continuous disease? The data on prevalence is going to fluctuate. The reason for that is very few countries, including ours, have any means to track us. Um, it would be a very simple thing to do to add on to our COVID-19 response. We have a COVID app. You record your infection. Ping, six weeks later, how are you feeling? Ping, three months later, how are you feeling? You know, you're not going to fake it, are you? Oh, I feel rubbish. You know, you're not, you, it, it, it's, it's there, right? We should, it should have been a simple implementation tool. But I understand the reasons why you might want, not want that. If you have an ability to track illness, you've got to do something about it. And so that's the difficult arena I think that we're in, that the more people we know are ill, we need services in place. And obviously uh, we know that there is action happening, but it's, it's those two things I think cause that um, lack of transparency, if you like, to sort of understand how many people out there have long COVID. So I have, with the statistics on how many people, through the pandemic, it was a good, that the number I used to hover with a lot was 10 to 30%. And 10 to 30% was a number that was frightening, right? That, that's a lot of people. That was sort of no vaccinations and all the rest of it. So what the trajectory of prevalence of long COVID, what sort of happened across time was that as pre, sort of Delta and prior, we were saying that 10 to 30%, there was lots of self-reported, I have not recovered. As our vaccinations rolled out, you know, that would have been great if that's where this pandemic ended. Our vaccinations were really protective against Delta. That's why when we got infected with vaccination with Delta, we called those infections breakthroughs because it was not common to get symptomatic infection at that point, because it was really protective. Then we get escape from our vaccinations. And what then happened was the Omicron and the Omicron is mild narrative, so damaging. What that said to those of us that were following along and trying to get to the source, you know, trying to understand long COVID, the, the first thing we realized 
very early on is it had nothing to do with severity of your infection. This was not a, I got hospitalised, I'm more likely to get long COVID. You may, yes, but you could get asymptomatic infection and still get long COVID. You could get mild, you could have not even known you had COVID and still get long COVID. So that was all happening very early on. So when the Omicron is mild narrative hit the world, that was frustrating because it was the off-ramp. Woohoo! You know, it's, we're going to... Of, of course it was wonderful that we were going to see less severity and less mortality, and absolutely that was great, but it wasn't really in the context of a, a virus that can spread and infect more and more people. We see this right here in New Zealand. Our death rate now is the highest it's ever been with, you know, the so-called mild variant. So what that told us, or what that was revealing, was that this virus, so when the Delta variants, they targeted the lungs, there was the trophism for the lungs, you got that severe, uh, you know, you ended up hospitalised because, because you couldn't breathe, you know, it was targeting the lungs. So Omicron didn't necessarily target the lungs. But it said to me, it now doesn't need two receptors to infect your cells. It only needs one. So, whew, free reign on your body. And that was what was worrying to us. It was great if our immune systems could shut it down and potentially cause less damage, but that didn't seem to be the case. I think when BA.1 hit, if it stayed at BA.1, we may have got away with it because it did seem to not be causing such severe illness across the board, even with long COVID. But as soon as BA.2 hit, and we got that here hard and fast, the, the people suffering with their symptoms, it was going through the roof. Like, so many people got severe symptoms, got sick, and didn't, you know, and had that at least the long tail. So this feeds into your second question of, you know, how many people do recover? I think what this variant, the Omicron and subvariants, tends to be doing is kicking a lot of people. So most people are having a decent illness, or at least more than pre-Omicron. And then at that phase, um, with uh, people recovering, yeah, people were worried, you know, oh my goodness, I'm so fatigued and all the rest of it. That's where we were spreading the awareness. This is where you rest through this. Do not try and push through fatigue, brain fog, all of those things, and rest. Go back to Victorian times of covalescing. You know, you, that's what covalescence is, resting. And so, yes, people were coming through that. We don't really know, because there's been no really, there's been no research on covalescence, like, you know, how long do you actually tap out of life and let your body recover versus, oh, I just have to push on. There, there's been research sort of more targeted around exercise and saying, yes, you're more likely to cause severe, severity of your symptoms if you exercise, but there's been no real understanding of how long that recovery needs to be. So we absolutely know people sort of have symptoms for three months or six months, but if those symptoms are getting worse, that, yeah, the, the trajectory is unknown. We know a lot of people from the first wave, especially internationally, who are no better off today, or in fact some of them worse than when they uh, first got infected back in 2020. So that's where those numbers are going to fluctuate. When vaccinations hit the scene, you know, there was a lot of, woohoo, this is, this is the road out. And it just wasn't. 
because absolutely it prevents severity. Absolutely critical for preventing severity. But the way, what we can't dissect amongst us is when we get infected and we have symptoms, some of those symptoms are going to relate to your immune response. Your immune response kicks off and goes, well, who get this thing out? And you feel it, fevers, all the action happens. And so we don't know what symptoms of an effective immune response is versus symptoms of this virus has gotten away on you, it's targeting your cells, it's given you damage. We don't know what the, the difference is there. So people who, where the, your immune system's been evaded and you're getting damage, that's where your risk to long COVID is. So where we sort of head next and, you know, in the context of what do we understand, we believe that this virus is causing widespread vascular damage. So your blood vessels feed every organ. So we think it's causing inflammation. We know that the virus in a severe state is causing upsetting of blood clotting pathways. All of those things are very well known. So we sort of are hypothesizing that the two things that underpin the ongoing chronic illness is the fact you've had widespread vascular and uh, blood vessel damage and your immune system has been disrupted. The immune disruption, hence I'm an immunologist, that's where I come in. We don't really know with the immune disruption which arm of the immune responses, response has, plays into this. We don't know if it's collateral damage. We don't know if it's the immune response going haywire. And there's so many facets of the immune system. We don't know if it's the antiviral immune response or the first line of defense response, but we know that the immune system is at play. So that, those are the two things that sort of underpin where we're sort of heading with trying to understand the pathology and uh, the disease triggers. But where I'm also centralizing where I think we need to head with all this, and the sort of the hints come through in uh, some of the other symptoms we hear about, and that we take for granted, or another sort of area of neglect, is that we walk around with latent viruses. We've got viruses, most of us have the virus that causes glandular fever, Epstein-Barr virus. We accept that. You know, we've sort of come to accept that we are apartment blocks for viral infection. So we have, generally as teenagers, children and teenagers get EBV. That can cause a year-long illness in teenagers. It can cause myalgic encephalomyelitis. It can cause now a strong causal link to MS. It can cause cancer. And here we are, you know, like, yeah, 90 to 95% of us all get EBV. So it's sort of calling to, in, to question or making us rethink our boring viruses because where we sort of are heading with the research is that potentially, you know, our immune systems are amazing, right? They're keeping EBV at, at bay. So we get infected with the, it's basically the herpes family, EBV, cytomegalovirus, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of them that, that don't leave us. Our immune system shuts them down and they park them away. And what we are sort of sensing, well, I mean, there's literature on this as well, but it's, it's more that that's not one hard or fast rule, is, we're, is that these latent viruses could be re reawakened. We hear a lot about shingles reactivation, right? We're hearing uh, people who have a history of, say, ME or fibromyalgia, any of those illnesses, 
uh, that they know that they're linked to glandular fever as a teenager, any of those sorts of things, you know, they might get told by their doctor that it looks like you've got viral reactivation. But we don't have decent clinical tools to actually categorically say that. And this was what was sort of alarming to me. It's like we need to revive all those tools to, to track our boring viruses that we just accept affect everyone. So there's a high chance that something within us is unclamped and we don't know how to switch it off. But these illnesses, what I speak about, like the post-exertional malaise or the post-exertion exacerbation of your symptoms, is probably one of the deep-seated mysteries that happens to people's bodies. It's, they find it hard to even articulate exactly how they're feeling. You know, sometimes you'll hear terminology of just, I feel poisoned. And, and that's what's so mysterious about this. Is it a complete switch that's happened metabolically? Is it energy? You know, are, are there unclamped latent viruses that are suddenly taking over all your cell systems? We just don't really know, but I think that's another core area of research is our latent viruses. We're an apartment block of microbes, right? There's more species in us than ourselves. So we've got our microbiome in our gut. We've got our mucosal, we've got microbiome in our mouth. We've got all these species everywhere. And is this viral infection causing just widespread body disruption of the species that live in us and something goes pathogenic and they spit the wrong thing out and they're triggering a pathogenic path. We, it's, there's so much research that needs to be done, but I think that's a core area that we're really interested in going down is understanding the, the latent viruses. It's also important, given we're in pandemic times, that when your teenager is, looks like they've got all these symptoms of long COVID, is it? Or is it glandular fever? I, I've addressed these types of um, emails as well, you know, where uh, a parent has said, you know, my teenager lists off the symptoms and the doctor's immediate first thought is long COVID. It's like, but what about all the ones we already have? They're not gone away. So as I said, Epstein-Barr virus is a classic, cytomegalovirus. I got cytomegalovirus in my early 20s. I hadn't even heard of it. I was an immunology PhD student and I'm like, what? What's it? And then I'm like, oh, no, I know that because I'm working with that in the lab. She was like, could you catch it in the lab? And I'm like, no, no, of course not. But what is it? She said, oh, it's this boring virus that all toddlers get. And you're weird because you're so sick. So that's sort of another reason I think that I found myself in this position of being so deep-seated and wanting to understand these illnesses because I've got the weird immune system too. I don't trust my immune system. Nuh -uh. Allergies, you name it. That's the immune system going haywire. And so when I got CMV and my doctor was like, this is odd, she only tested me because we'd just had something like swine flu, bird flu, one of those flus, you non, non seasonal flu. Otherwise, I would have not have even been investigated. And then my first result that came back was Sorry to tell you, but you've got hepatitis. And I was like, excuse me. But that meant my liver was inflamed. <laughs> but she didn't actually know that that's what she was telling me either. She just was like, sorry. Um, so that was sort of, you know, where this all sort of led, that I then hit the literature. And it, I didn't like what I read, because it was all about, oh, only immunocompromised people 
get this severely? And I'm like, okay. And luckily, you know, it didn't give me a chronic illness. It kicked me, floored me for at least three months. And the malaise I remember from that was, and, and this is where I have this deep-seated, um, like I have this true feeling of how a, a body disruption of even the microbes that live in us have the ability to immediately flip a switch to affect your, your psyche. It's got nothing to do with psychological triggers. It's kind of like this body disruption has just happened. And the malaise that I can remember was just sort of like a I don't care kind of feeling. Like that's what malaise was almost described as, is just meh. But that, I was extremely sick from that. So I, I rock around keeping that at bay, and I hope it stays at bay. But I think that's an, an avenue of research that we really need to uncover. So those are the sort of core features that we really want to sink our teeth into, is understanding the trigger. We know that there is ongoing inflammation. In an ideal world, what we'd have is a tool to track you your blood and say, yep, you need to keep resting, you need to keep resting. Yep, I, I th your inflammatory molecules, everything that we know goes crazy, are all settling, you're okay now. That's, that's the ideal scenario, is being able to track what's happening. We don't have those tools. We just don't have them. Question down the back. At the end of the day, over 50% of our bodies is bacterial cells. Exactly. So has there been any attempt to look at that angle? The problem with the research arena is it's been very slow. Remember, we had to convince the world that it existed, that you know, it, was, it was a condition that needed to have research done on it. So, and even when the money rolled out internationally, there was, I think it's 15 million in the US, uh, UK, a billion in the US. The, the, the money didn't necessarily go down the types of avenues that the patients really wanted to see done. Microbiome was right at the top. So one of the things I haven't spoken about, which reminds me, is that one of the other core hypotheses is a viral depot viral reservoir or viral, well, those are sort of the terms, viral, some, that is there SARS-CoV-2 somewhere in the body, probably dead, probably sequestered, like has the immune system not cleared it out? It's probably one of, it's sort of the other pillar underpinning the hypotheses. So we have vascular damage or upset of clotting pathways causing stickiness and inflammation. We've got the dysregulated immune system that plays into that. And the other pillar is virus. And so, but my question there, or where I don't think there's enough evidence, is, is the virus causing that ongoing stimulus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, hidden somewhere? Or is it viral reactivation? And all of those things can be sort of aligned back to the microbiome as well in the sense that we know that the virus can uh, cause havoc in the gut and, and mucosal services. So is it gut disruption, uh, you know, vascular damage in the gut and all of that kind of stuff, and so things leak out and therefore it's microbe bits and pieces that are going into circulation causing triggers. But the short answer is that there's not been any solid evidence in that space. So, so there's, there's efforts going on to do biopsies to try and find the virus in the gut, absolutely. Um, and I think in the, in, the, in the way of, or in the concept of is there virus somewhere, there's the, 
the research is sort of showing mostly based on autopsy work, which is really difficult to reconcile. In autopsies, you know, the person didn't survive. There are some studies that the person didn't die of COVID, you know, just completely randomly unrelated. And that, you know, you can still find virus, but no one, I don't believe to this day there's been any studies that show virus somewhere and show that it's viable, you know, as in it's actually being sequestered somewhere. The, the bigger chance if there's virus, SARS-CoV-2 virus involved is that it's dead and your immune system's done a bad job of getting rid of it. So it's kind of triggering. So that could be in the gut as well. There are all sorts of hypotheses around there, but those are the sort of strongest ones, I think. Yeah. You referred to us living in a current pandemic period, which I agree with. What would be worth keeping on to, you know, mm. immediate those things? Yeah, those of us working in the space do not see that we're past tense pandemic. Absolutely not. And even in the countries that it looks like that, there are plenty of people now shut out of society. Anyone who classifies themselves as medically vulnerable, clinically vulnerable, can't partake because the virus is circulating everywhere. So one thing I think that surprised me from the pandemic hitting from a, a humanity point of view is that it was kind of our time to innovate and change. It was kind of like a wake-up call. You know, the, the earth began to breathe again, right? Planes were grounded. You know, climate change was happening, all those sorts of things. And it was like, okay, let's breathe. And there seems to be this big rush to just go back where we were. Um, which has kind of surprised me. I would have much rather of being part of this movement where we change and move forward. And so part of that change and moving forward is the acceptance that this virus is, is airborne and, and so are all of these other respiratory viruses. So forcing sort of change in areas like well-ventilated spaces, obviously masking is, is very useful in, in stopping transmission. And so normalising these behaviours, not sort of forcing and enforcing going back to the way we were. It would be much more innovative and inclusive to be able to, you know, create spaces where everyone can come back to society. So, and, and things in that space include what we see in some of the countries that are doing a better job of keeping the virus in check still, is where uh, businesses are displaying how ventilated their buildings are. You know, those sorts of things from a business perspective will bring more people back. I want to see businesses who care about my health and therefore I'll come back too. So I think, I think it's, we're sort of in a phase of, we, we, we all want to get back to a sense of normality, but let's be innovative and let's enforce some change rather than trying to go back to a place which wasn't working. So th those are the sort of core tools, and we want to, we would like to see that rolled out. So as I say, masking is normalised in, in places they need to be, well-ventilated spaces, and bragging about your business with the well-ventilated spaces. Um, you know, we, we, summer is coming, great, you know, but we've got to get there. So it's just, you know, it's, it's respecting thy neighbour and, you know, and all those sort of bits and pieces as well, I think, that play into that. So yeah, I think there's, we, we really don't know what's coming in the sense that we, at any minute, you know, a, a variant may catch us off guard. And the more that we're keeping up defences against that, the more we won't be, kept, kept, uh, be off guard when it happens, if it happens. 
but yeah, we have to start normalising a little bit of change at the very least, but I, I think there's a lot of discussion that there's not change, it's just reverse, revert back to normal, whereas I think we could do much better. What would you recommend people who may be facing a GP who's not taking it seriously or are not treating people with, um, you know, the open ear and the respect? What do people do? Yeah, it's a difficult one because we know that help is coming, but, you know, it needs to be now, right? So, um, so we have a support group on Facebook where people can join up to get at least, you know, the camaraderie of knowing that you're going through this. Um, but, you know, and Facebook's not for everyone either. So we hope that we're going to be developing more and more resources and sort of behind the scenes we are working towards that. We've got uh, sort of uh, networks of researchers and doctors across the country where we're putting our minds together to try and do what we can in the interim. And, and as I say, that will include developing resources to take to your doctor as well. So, you know, we've been um, at the GP conferences, you know, we're sort of getting the word out there because it's okay that, you know, you don't know what to do as a doctor. We, you know, we, in the same vein of saying that long COVID is like MECFS, for symptom management, yes, we, there's still lots we don't know of the comparisons there. That's why the research is urgent as well because it, we, we expect in due course that SARS-CoV-2 can cause MECFS will be terminology we will see. But at the same time, it can cause cardiac issues. You know, the list of health, ongoing health concerns is growing daily. And it's just that we know what can happen immediately, right? We know what can happen to your body now. We don't know what's going to happen long term. And so it's learning from other illnesses and, and drawing on those resources that exist. But, it, but also building on them as well. So as I said, the, the sort of core symptomology, I guess one, in fact, one area of symptoms that I forgot to speak about was in that core features is dysautonomia. In fact, it's probably the, the most important one. So I'm glad you sort of triggered this for me to remember to talk about it. Dysautonomia is a term in a cluster of symptoms that not many doctors have seen until now. Dysautonomia means dysregulation of your autonomic system. Everything that you naturally do, breathe, heart rate, blood pressure, all that stuff that your body just does gets disrupted. So, and it's probably one of the most common, again, speaking about on a spectrum, it's probably the most common, like you could have, you might not have fatigue or post-exertional malaise, but you could have dysautonomia. So it's down at the, um, at the very common arena. So what that looks like is tachycardia, racing heart, fainting at, when you have that badly, um, shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is one of a, a common symptom as well. But also, in, when we talk about shortness of breath, it's, it's a difficult one because it could be dysautonomia because your breathing patterns are all messed up from the virus inflaming your nervous system. Or it could be because you've got lots of inflammation and therefore your blood's sticky, and therefore you, you're not breathing properly because you're not getting enough oxygen. And we don't have the answer to that. We don't know if shortness of the breath is, is which one that is. And obviously a lot of these symptoms people can get, they can get stabbing chest pains, tachycardia, shortness of breath. You need to see a doctor for those things. You know, that those can be very serious things as well. So 
what can often happen to someone who doesn't know about this illness? It's scary. Your heart's racing and all those sorts of things. And you might go, you might get referred to a cardiologist and they'll say, oh, you, nothing wrong with your heart. And you sent on your way. But what we do know, and you know, the common term for that is POTS actually. It's, it's basically, um, you know, when you go from a lying position to upright, your body doesn't handle it. But there's an orthostatic intolerance. So essentially, again, this is a core feature of ME-CFS. And probably, as I said, it's probably one of the most common uh, symptom um, groups with long COVID. So the answer to, you know, what do you do um, when you get dismissed by your doctor? Patients will say, find a new doctor. Um, it's, it's, and, and, and I must say I'm generalising as well because we absolutely know there are some wonderful doctors who are listening and doing their best, but we don't want the inequities. We want, we want clinics that understand the symptom spectrum. The symptom spectrum can be as big as 20, uh, sorry, 200 symptoms. And it's not, you know, and that can be part of other illnesses, but it's this cascade of everything happening at once. And weird stuff, nerve damage. I had someone on my study down in Wellington who I think it was day five of her infection, completely numb. She has to use a wheelchair. She was an athlete before, 40 years old, and now she's in a wheelchair to move because she can't walk properly. And absolutely we know that this virus causes nerve damage. So those are the sorts of things we know that there's widespread inflammation, but then there's pockets of people that is triggering things like yeah, widespread nerve damage or, or disruption of the nervous system. So it is very difficult and we just hope that um, moving forward that we will have resource pages and landing page, web pages and resource centres to help more people um, and, and, yeah, and just spread the awareness of this because we know it's not, it's not nearly known widely enough, I will say. What are your thoughts in terms of long COVID? Is that is the chance of getting long COVID, does it decrease with repeat infection or do you think every infection will give you the same probability of long COVID? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because, yes, the, the veteran data that keeps coming out is, you know, it's just another barrage of, oh, my goodness, right? You know, we've seen the veteran study showing cardiac risk and now the reinfection risk and there was also, you know, does your vaccination protect you? And so what I would say to that is that we don't have enough information, but from a, when we sort of strip it back, if you, if you get infected, it might depend on how soon after you got, get infected or what your immunity is at that point. So it's going to be very, very hard to document exactly what your risk is because it might be how, how primed is your body? Do you have loads of antibody ready to go to shut the virus down when you first get infected and therefore you had it mildly, you were good, and then you get, this, you get exposed when your, your immunity is lowered because a lot, enough time has passed and then you get infected then and then you've got a risk? Or are we going to see people that have a risk profile, you know, that no matter what they do, fully vaccinated, they keep getting infected and their risk keeps going up. We don't have enough data on that, but the veteran study did suggest that your health issues escalate as you keep getting infected. You know, your chances of death from, you know, and, and the death thing is it's the chance of mortality at some point. It's not necessarily that you get a severe illness and die from that. It's that you might have a 
uh, a severe attack, it could be a heart attack or, you know, basically all of those risk scales went up with repeated infection. And it's just really, really difficult to tease apart who's at risk because we're all vaccinated at different times and our immune systems don't always generate the best response in all of us. So what I would say to that, I think it's less chance that lots of infections make you bulletproof. I think it's the other way around. I think it, it makes logical sense that if you are getting symptoms, maybe you're bulletproof if you get lots of infections and don't feel a thing because your immune system is amazing and it kicks it out. But I don't think it it's not, doesn't make logical sense that each repeated actual symptomatic kicking you, flooring you infection is going to be a protective thing to do. We know that the risks are going to continually escalate from these big studies that are coming through. So that's where we're saying, you know, if you've been infected, try not to get it again. And we know that immunity drops away. If you, you know, people have been uh, fully vaccinated, infected, and you're eligible for a booster, get the booster. The, the more you can keep the virus at bay, the chances you're of getting long COVID should be decreasing. And so we, we don't yet know, you know, we hear rumours of second generation vaccinations, you know, whether it's going to be more targeted to our Omicron variants and therefore be better at shutting it out, like, like Delta was. Our vaccinations were amazing at shutting down Delta. So maybe if we had a, a vaccine that was that much more protective, then we'll start to see our risks plummet. But there's just too many grey areas, I think, in, in, in understanding whether we're going to get continual risk or not. But I don't feel that our risks are reducing with more infections. Was this observed in the first outbreak in 2003? The SARS, yes. Mm. Yes. Back then, you know, it was a patient term, long COVID. So back then it was MECFS. And yes, there's literature that a decent proportion of people who got SARS went on to get MECFS. So again, it wasn't unexpected. It was just that MECFS has traditionally been dismissed as a non-medical condition to put resources into. Well, not non-medical, but, you know, there's not been enough evidence and great research to really uncover enough information so that we could actually leap on and develop treatments for it. And that's the silver lining of this pandemic that we hope that the urgency is now there. But yes, it did happen with SARS and MERS. Is the government putting funding into long COVID and referral hubs and, you know, clinics and so on? Yes. So a couple of months ago, there was a $9 million funding pool that sort of got split into COVID-19 research or vaccination research. And then under that umbrella, long COVID was part of that. Bearing in mind it's from a, a ministerial point of view, so there's short-term uh, policy-driven type projects, you know, not sort of the, you know, in research, things, you know, take a long time. And you, so, for example, my research study is crowdfunded. There was no avenue in New Zealand to do urgent research. You know, like applying for funding in, in, in any research arena is not what we'd call quick. It's a long process. So there was nothing. So we crowdfunded to get started. The urgency was so real. So, yes, the ministry released this funding round. We believe that we will start to hear where that funding is going soon. And underpinning all of that, we do know that the ministry have a long COVID advisory group that are working on 
developing sort of the tools, if you like, to roll out long COVID clinical care as well. But we, we still want to underpin that with the research. Like, as I said, it's kind of like the waves of what happens internationally um, and the patients there then sort of rolls out here. So, so the urgency initially was, you know, this is real. And then clinics, yay, clinics. The UK clinics failed miserably. So just because you have a clinic doesn't mean it's doing anything. So we wanted to learn from those mistakes because people were going on waiting lists. They would turn up and kind of dished out yoga classes or, you know, yes, I know you're sick, but there's nothing we can do. So, so all of that, just because you have a clinic rolled out or, you know, billions spent, as was in the US, it doesn't mean it transpires to anything. So what the patient, large patient groups are now doing is saying, put us in the picture talk to us what we want, they're experts in their illness. So that's sort of what's happening now is at least any research is having the patient voice alongside so that we can understand what those patient needs are. I even read somewhere internationally, I can't remember if it was the US or the UK, that said, let's stop putting money into clinics if we don't know what we're going to do with us. Let's really put urgent money into biomedical research. And so we, we hope to see the, the efforts along those ways coming soon. But of course, we still need that the clinical point of view or clinical contact so that we can start to track people and understand the illness better.